Welcome back to another Friends of ASOR podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Anderson. In this podcast, we're talking about the article, An Early Islamic Homicide at Qasr Halabat, Jordan. It's from the recent special issue of the Near Eastern Archaeology magazine, Crime and Punishment in the Bible and the Near East. We're speaking with Dr. Megan Perry, who co-authored the article, along with Katherine Parker and R. Taylor Montgomery. Dr. Perry is an associate professor of biological anthropology at East Carolina University, the co-director of the Petra Northridge Project, and is involved in forensic anthropological investigations in eastern North Carolina. The next voice you'll hear is Dr. Perry telling us what it's like to be a forensic anthropologist. Well, it's, um, it's an interesting application of the training that I have as a bioarchaeologist. So, um, you know, there, the difference between the two is really that a forensic anthropologist is trying to, you know, identify um, uh, uh, an unknown individual, um, you know, from a modern context who potentially is missing and um, their skeletal remains have been found. And so they want to figure out, you know, who this person is and possibly what happened to them. Um, and obviously, archaeologically, that's not really feasible because we don't really often know identities of people who could possibly be buried or as Kasser Halabat thrown into a well at a particular site. In this case, it was interesting to apply a lot of forensic anthropological techniques, things that you would use in a, you know, a forensic case to an archaeological context. So while we couldn't really do the positive identification, that kind of thing, it was, a, I think, a good exercise for my students as well. Right. And for the case we're talking about, six bodies, as you mentioned, were found at an archaeological site. Which brings me to my next question. In the article, you and your co-authors mentioned that the discovery of these remains came as a shock to the archaeologists working at the site. Why would it be shocking to find remains at an archaeological site? Because it was largely, at that point, um, an architectural restoration project um, being directed by Ignacio Arce of the Spanish Archaeological Mission. And so they were clearing out the cistern to recover architectural fragments that had fallen in there um, in antiquity, you know, after earthquakes and that kind of thing, and to help with the architectural reconstruction. And so they weren't really expecting to find all of a sudden the bones of a bunch of people down at the bottom of the cistern. And in fact, I think it it took a bit for, you know, people to kind of realize that, you know, that we actually, we found something and maybe we need to go back. And I think they went back and like sifted some of the, re-sifted some of the spoil piles and stuff to recover some more human remains. But so it was not expected in that context by any means. Right. And they found the bodies in a cistern or a well. Can you tell me how much water would have been stored in that well and how many people would that have served? Um, that's a good question. Um, during the period that the coffer was in use, um, it likely served not only the residents of the the coffer. I mean, the, the the well itself probably goes back into the Roman period, so it would have when it was a, a garrison. So it would probably you know served those individuals, and then as it sort of cycled through its different periods of use and different types of use, um, you know, it would serve the the individuals living within the coffer because it's actually the cistern is in the in the building itself so it's not um you know outside and it's possible that people living in the surrounding area or or people that would um come through the site while the coffer was still in use may have made use of the cistern but 
once the copper goes out of use and the building starts to deteriorate a bit, um, you know, that's when it sort of becomes a little more ephemeral in terms of who would be using the cistern. And it's possible that the well would be known to people traveling through the region and possibly, you know, people who are pastoral nomads and that kind of thing. Um, and would, you know, stop there, maybe take shelter in the ruins of the Kasser and, you know, get water from the well to support them on the next leg of their journey. Do we know if the remains were placed in the well while it was still in use, or was it after it had been abandoned? Yeah, apparently it was while the well was still in use, because the remains were found at the bottom of the cistern. There wasn't any um, architectural debris or anything in between them and the actual bottom. I mean, there was some silt on the bottom that, you know, always happens in a, in right. any kind of water catchment feature. But yeah, they were likely thrown in when it was still being used by people. And would that have ruined the water source or would people still have used it? I mean, obviously people, well, hopefully didn't know that they were down there, but. <laughs> yeah, um... that's a, that's an interesting point is that, yeah, the water would uh, for a while anyway, be rather gross. And I assume that people could smell decomp fluid, you know, rising to the top of the water within the well for a while. But, you know, a year or so later, um, it, you know, it's, it's curious, you know, one, you know, did people know what happened? You know, they probably smelled that something happened, but they probably didn't know that somebody, you know, maybe it was a dead goat or something in there. <laughs> um, and, you know, would they, maybe no. they wouldn't use the water. Yeah, yeah but I maybe, I mean, you know, maybe they, in there, I personally would still be like, <laughs> I wouldn't drink it either. Um, but, you know, maybe they gave it to their herds or, you know, horses or camels or whatever. Um, certainly after a period of time, right, you wouldn't, you know, I don't know if people then would, once it stopped smelling, would go back to using it. But if you want to get rid of, you know, some dead bodies, putting it in the cistern is a viable way to, to do so. Well, and so it's a question, right, did somebody put it in the cistern to hide them or did put it in the cistern to spoil the water or both, right? Right. And I guess another question I have is, if they were in the middle of the desert, then why not just take the bodies out into the desert? Why potentially spoil a water source? Maybe, yeah, maybe it was purposive, right? They wanted to, um, whoever did this, maybe they wanted control over the area and use this as a way for other people to, to avoid it. Um mm-hmm. You know, I you know it's a good question. There's it's really hard to to make any kind of interpretation because we don't even really know who was you know there was no one living there right permanently. So we don't. It's really hard to sort of interpolate that. So what is the significance of these murders? I mean, with it happening over a thousand years ago, and being that we can never truly figure out who did it or why or who these individuals really were. What can we learn from it? Well, one of the, I mean, first of all, we we now know that the site was a bit more dynamic than during this particular period than what we would have gotten from other archaeological evidence that has been found. So basically from from previous excavations that have been done by Ignacio and Razi Bisha, um, that, you know, there wasn't really a lot of really any activity that I that I remember reading about that they have found from archaeological data during the 8th to 10th centuries. Um, so it's kind of interesting to fill in that period of history where you, you, you know, it kind of makes the landscape a little more dynamic and active um, during that period. It also just even, 
getting the biological information that we did get from these people tells us a little bit about life during that period. I mean, you know, that they were, you know, relatively healthy, more or less, and their isotopic data shows that they grew up moving back and forth between a couple of different regions and possibly they continue to do so as adults and they all had the same signatures in their teeth so maybe they were part of a a familial or social group that had stayed together from childhood you know up until their um when they perished so things like that you can also again sort of fill in gaps in a, in an area that is not really covered by um, textual evidence, you know, during this period. Um, it's sort of a backwater during the Abbasid um, period, and you can extend that out to, to get sort of a little more of a picture of what the region was like during this period. Absolutely. So let's take a look at the technical side. Aside from the fact that you found six individuals at the bottom of a well, what made you think this was a murder or a trauma as opposed to maybe an accident? Um, that was actually the work of a graduate student of mine, uh, Taylor Montgomery, for his master's thesis a few years ago. Um, I mean, we you know knew there was trauma on the skulls. Um, you know that was clear. Um, you know, just by looking at them, you know they looked like typical blunt force trauma that you'd get. You know, from somebody whacking you in the head with something that you know I've seen in forensic cases. Um, from people here in Eastern North Carolina. and So for um, someone like me who doesn't have a forensic background, could you explain the difference between what a blunt force trauma looks like as opposed to someone who maybe fell down and hit their head on something as they fell? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the focus, the point of impact, um, you know, depends on the kind of instrument they're using. The point of impact would be much smaller if somebody got struck in the head by something than if they hit their head um, on a, uh, 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 hit their head on something that had a large surface area like um, the side of a well. You would also expect to see trauma in other parts of the body as well. You know, maybe some fractures in the arms and, and, and legs. You know, it's not clear how much water was actually in the well. You know, did they fall in the water and, um, you know, would, have, would not have like hit bottom, but mm -hmm. that, that we really don't know. The nice thing is that there's um, a lot of you know, evidence out there, again, like forensic studies that have looked at the difference of distribution of trauma across the body from people who have fallen versus people who, um, you know, got struck by a car or people who, you know, got hit in the head and that kind of thing. So by sort of comparing where the trauma is located on the body, um, the type of trauma that we see in the skull. Um, the other thing is, too, that, you know, some individuals have were hit more than once which, you know, could possibly happen if you're falling into a cistern, but it's not as likely as, you know, getting struck by someone. So what would make you say that this situation was a homicide and not a battle site or maybe a ritual ground or even somewhere where capital punishment was carried out? I mean, that's a good question, too. I mean, homicide just basically means um, death by the hand of another. So, I mean, in, in a legal sense. So it's maybe they weren't necessarily murdered. Um, you know, maybe it was part of um, maybe they were being punished or it was some kind of, you know, ritual behavior. I can't think of any parallels that would say that that was going on during this period. Um, but, you know, who knows? 
Um, and again, kind that of satanic like cult. I don't know. <laughs> the, the water source. Yeah. Well, there's that too. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I can't really, you know, and that's where um, forensic anthropologists actually are limited to, you know, basically in terms of the, they're limited to determining the manner of death. So, homicide. You know, is it death by the hand of another? Is it suicide? Is it an accident? Is it, um, you know, do we not know? Was it natural? Um, and those are the basic categories that um, our interpretations will fall under. Um, it's really up to other experts to say, you know, that they died because of a, a hemorrhage to the brain or they, you know, bled out or that it was murder as opposed to manslaughter, that kind of thing. Um, so that's why I really just kind of limited it to homicide and it, you know, it didn't seem like they killed themselves and it didn't seem like an accident and it probably wasn't natural. Right. So, <laughs> and what can you tell us about the victims or individuals? Um, well, basically they were, um, a cross section of, um, adults of various ages. So the youngest, and I don't have my article in front of me, but I think the youngest was in their twenties, late twenties, early thirties. And the oldest was in their late forties, I think. And, um, they were five males and one female, there were five of the skulls that clearly showed um, this trauma that occurred around the time of death. There was one skull that was very fragmentary and we didn't see any sign of trauma in that skull, but we can't, you know, the absence of evidence is not necessarily the evidence of absence or whatever <laughs> I'm trying to say, but you know, right, so no. it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, it might've been there. We just don't know. Um, so we can't really say what happened to that individual. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them also had, you know, sharp first trauma to the arms. One in particular looked like they were blocking a blow using their forearm. Um, but it was, you know, it's from a sharp weapon, you know, like a, mm-hmm. a sword um, or, or something like that. So the people who um, engaged in this act had, you know, different types of weapons. Um, but what's interesting is that, Three of them, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, two or three had healed trauma to their skull, so they had actually been in some kind of skirmish earlier in their life, survived, and it healed over. So, and how um, do you tell the difference between a healed trauma and a trauma that maybe happened post mortem? So if it happened before death, um, which we call anti mortem trauma, it shows some kind of uh, bone response, bone regeneration. Um, you know, what we call an osteogenic response. So basically the bone starts healing and you can see that, you know, probably it depends on the age of the person and where they got hit and what methods you're using. But, um, you know, histologically, so if you take a thin section of the, of the, the trauma and look at it in the microscope, you would be able to see that there's some kind of um, bony reaction occurring there. But if you were just looking at it, it would probably, you wouldn't be able to visibly see anything for, you know, a couple of weeks probably. And then, um, so that's really the key one for for before death. Um, The harder part is distinguishing if it happened around the time of death, which we call paramortem, or after death, which is postmortem. Um, and so we look at um, things like discoloration of the broken edges. Um, you know, for example, excavations. You know, if you're digging up, if you're digging out a cistern and you're not expecting bones, it's possible that a shovel or some other implement will break them. But right. you'd be able to distinguish that because it would be 
of a different color than the surrounding bone, right? Because it's not been exposed to the same kind of taphonomic processes um, right. since the person died. And another thing is just the way bone breaks when it's um, uh, what we call dry bone. So it's basically um, the, the, the greasiness um, essentially has um, dissipated versus what we call like wet bone or living bone. They break very differently. And you think about the difference between breaking a tree branch that is on a living tree versus, you know, a dead branch that's just a stick lying on the ground, right? They, they break. Yeah, exactly. And there's, you know, going to be sort of splintering and pieces flying off. And um, in paramortem trauma, um, you get a little bit of um, warping and um, because there's a whole biomechanical reason for that, but it's, it looks warped and it, um, the, the edges of the break often are cleaner, um, you know, smoother, that kind of thing. So there's a whole, a whole slew of indicators I would look at to, to distinguish the two. All right. And what would you say was the most difficult or challenging part of your investigation and research? Um, the most challenging part and maybe the most frustrating part was the fact that um, all the remains were commingled. So they were, um, you know, they weren't recovered as, you know, complete skeletons. We were able to sort out the bones from the body into individuals, more or less. Um, and obviously the skulls, you know, could be just, you know, were individual skulls. But the problem was matching the skulls to the rest of the body because there wasn't a lot of diversity in the sample. You know, they're mostly male. Um, they're kind of around the same age. And the skull is not really a good place to look for indicators of age for adults. So with the, with the rest of the body, we were able to get a pretty good age estimation and the skull would be more general. And so it was hard to sort of link up a skull with a particular right. set of body bones, I guess you could say post-cranial, which you call them. And the only one we're obviously able to do that with is the female. So I think that was the most frustrating part um, was trying to individuate the, the skeletons and, um, you know, link them to each other. So you mentioned earlier that all the individuals seem to have a familial tie and you also bring up isotopes. Now I have a question that's a little bit off topic. You use isotope ratios in the teeth to help pinpoint where someone has spent their childhood or grew up. And I read in the article that humans absorb this isotope through what they eat or drink. Does that mean that archeologists hundreds of years from now will have a harder time identifying these isotopes in the humans of today since our food is imported from all over the world? Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's, and we're drinking bottled water and that kind of thing. So it is very difficult. Um, now, some people are able to, to make more general, um, you know, considerations. So, you know, for example, um, you know, it's used a lot to maybe track um, somebody who may be an undocumented immigrant um, back to where they were um, originally from. You know, so the difference between, for example, Eastern North Carolina and Southern Mexico is, is, you know, there's a lot of difference there in terms of even even if people are eating imported food, where the food's coming from and what type, you know, what's the what's the proportion of imported versus local, and all and the and also for water as well, it's going to be um, pretty different. Um, water, actually, I'd say for modern 
population's water is a little bit better because even though people do drink a lot of bottled water, um, we do also, you know, consume a lot of our local water and um, that seems to be a little bit better. Uh, but yeah, it's actually, I mean, it is really hard. Um, the one interesting application, this is also a little bit off topic, that I've been noticing that's being done a lot is in Europe. Um, they're using um, strontium and oxygen isotopes to um, judge the validity of, you know, because certain products, you know, have, they can't, you know, Parma ham can't be called Parma ham unless it's from like Parma, Italy, right? Or there's these other kind of things. And so if somebody's trying to sell, you know, some ham from somewhere else as Parma ham, that's, you know, illegal. So it's now used to sort of test the the origins of different products to make sure that they are actually from where they're saying they're from, if that makes any sense. So that's yeah, kind of an interesting, yeah, that is really yeah interesting. so it's, yeah, it is really interesting. <laughs> but for us humans who are eating this stuff from all over, um, you know, it's, it does make it more difficult. So does your isotopic signature get set when you're a child or does it continue to change your entire life? It's, well, it depends on the skeletal tissue. So your dental enamel and your teeth form, of course, when your teeth are forming when you're a kid and depending on which tooth we're talking about, that's sort of a different age range. And then it's, it doesn't change. Um, but the, your other bones are constantly remodeling. They're constantly, you know, breaking down and building up, you know, having cellular turnover. And so your bones, depending on the bone and that kind of thing can reflect about the stuff you've been eating the last seven to 10 years of your life. So, um, that's the big difference there. Interesting. And how is your current research coming? Can we be expecting any more publications soon? Oh, yeah. I actually have an article coming out on um, strontium isotope analysis of burials from Byzantine Isla or Aqaba. So it was a big seaport, right, during the Roman Byzantine, well, Nabataean through Byzantine period. And so it shows actually that these people came from a pretty long way away. Um, that's me coming out in, I think, anthropological and archaeological sciences. But we'll have to do a, a, a Petra article for a NEA at some point. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd have to talk to you again. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, Megan, thank you for joining us. And I look forward to seeing and talking to you in the future. Great. I look forward to it too, Caitlin. Thanks. This has been a Friends of ASOR podcast. The Friends of ASOR initiative is an outreach program of the American Schools of Oriental Research. Anyone can become a friend and it's free. Just go to asorblog.org backslash FOA-registration to sign up. Again, that's asorblog.org backslash FOA-registration. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the ASOR blog for all of our podcasts, videos, and a whole lot more.